Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. We're in Philippians chapter 3 and we're reading the first 11 verses. And just some reminders, Paul is writing to a local church, so in a very real sense he's writing to us. And we, we've seen the theme of joy, even though he's writing from prison, he's been put there because of his faith in Christ, because of what he's doing for the gospel, and he keeps repeating this theme of the essence of joy, and joy, not just joy, but joy in Jesus Christ. Why does he say this? Well, it's very clear that when we go through trying circumstances, the happiness we had last week doesn't really carry us through the trial, does it? So he's talking about a deep-seated joy that actually comes from somewhere else. It's embedded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to look at tonight, very simply, is the gospel. We're going to have a look at three points about the gospel, but first we're going to read these 11 verses. So if you're at Philippians chapter 3, it'll be on the screen as well. He writes this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, we're going to have a look at three points that come out of this passage about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first one, very simply, is the purity of the gospel. The importance of that, the second one is the power of the gospel, and the third one is the promise of the gospel, which talks about our eternal security in Christ. And Paul emphasizes that the temporariness of happiness is something not to go after. And if we think about it, the wise person might find happiness in wisdom. The hard worker might find some happiness in hard work and the reward of that. The Wealthy might find temporary happiness in riches, but none of this carries right through to the end. And the gospel that Jesus died for is the only place where we find true joy, the only place. And we'll see why that is tonight. But that leads us to the first point, which is the simple purity of the gospel. In verse 2, Paul says this, and he uses very strong language. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And what he's talking about, there was a sect of the Pharisees called the Judaizers, and what they were doing, they were insisting that in order for you to be saved, 
you had to be circumcised. So there had to be an aspect of the old covenant that they pulled into the new covenant with Jesus Christ, and they said it's not enough to just believe. You have to be circumcised. And Paul responds with an incredible statement. He says, we, the church, he says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And what these Judaizers were doing was they were taking the gospel and they would add something to it and that they would make it a legalistic requirement and say that this is the rule of law. And what they were doing there is they were taking Christ's work and they were saying it does not sufficient for your salvation. And in our culture today, with our mega churches, with celebrity pastors, with, with TV ministries that happen from 12,000 miles away, there is a lot of potential compromise that comes because we have a very militant secular culture that is pushing in on churches. A lot of churches are, are taking a step back and they're not taking a step forward in terms of actually standing for what they believe in. There's, there's gospel compromise that is happening all over the world. And the result of this is that it ends up muddying the gospel story. It ends up muddying the work of what Jesus has done. So the question we begin with is how pure is the gospel that we are seeing in churches today and in the world today? How clear is it? And the story of the gospel is so, so simple. God created the, the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman. He then breathed life into them. They were created physically, but he breathed spiritual life into them. He gave them free will. They then chose to rebel, and they sinned and brought sin into the world. God the Father then, because of the, the love of his creation, especially man and woman, he then sent his only son to die a death, the penalty of which was due to them, shed his blood in order that they may be saved, Come to him and receive eternal life. That is the simplicity of the gospel message. But the point of that is that we are not saved by our pedigree, by our family, by our qualifications, by our money, by our good works or our good looks. If it was good looks, I'd be there first in line. <laughs> Who's laughing? <laughs> we are only saved by what Christ has done. And we are saved, and the reformers in the 1500s, coined this phrase. They said, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the reason why they had to do that was not just the Judaizers 2,000 years ago, but in the 1500s, there was gospel compromise going on. There's gospel compromise happening today. And what we mean by this, by grace alone, grace alone is the unmerited favor and love of God over his people. You see, God looks at us, he sees sinners, but he also sees what we know as Imago Dei. He sees the image of God as he created us to be. And so his love poured over us, unmerited in any goodness in ourselves, but poured out by him is grace. So we are saved by grace. We are saved through faith because faith alone is our method of salvation. We do not have anything, there's nothing that I can do to actually make myself saved. It is all the work of Christ, the complete work of his on the cross, and we are saved by through faith. And we are saved in Christ alone. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. It is all Jesus Christ, the work that he has done. And when Paul looks at his own nature and his own ability, his own achievements, he goes back through verses 5 and 6 and he says, but if there was any chance that anybody physically could, could, could become saved, 
according to the law, I was that man. Because he says, I was born into the nation of Israel, the chosen nation. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born into the right tribe of the twelve within that nation, the tribe of Benjamin. He says, in terms of my studies, I was a Pharisee. I studied the law all day. I know it all. So he knew the system very well of trying to use works to attain salvation and God's love. And he persecuted the church. In terms of his zeal for the gospel, the gospel that he understood, which was the law, the old Judaism, he was an absolute, he was, his zeal was beyond measure. In other words, he's saying he was the best of the best. But the truth of that, because he rejected Christ as the Messiah and he persecuted the church, he was basically a state-sponsored terrorist. And what happens when you have religion without Christ, very simply, is that you end up with love and hate mixed together, but they are the wrong way around. So you end up with people who love the wrong things and hate the right things. So if we look at what Paul was doing, he loved the Judaic law and he hated the Christians because they did not comply. And they were preaching a different message to what he believed. And so his response was to persecute them. So religion without Christ is love and it's hate. And if we look at Syria at the moment, what do we see? What is ISIS doing? They love their law and they hate anything that threatens it. And for them, this must die. Because their law must live. They love their law and they hate anything that does not comply or that threatens their lifestyle. And so... Paul, also writing to the Galatians, he actually hits this point on the head, hits a nail on the head. He writes in Galatians 5 verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, meaning the law. If anybody knew, and Paul was the prime example of of the difference between law and grace, it was him. When you've got a moment, read Acts 9. Have Have a read again of the conversion of Paul. It is absolutely incredible. He was literally taken from darkness to light because he was blind for three days. So God met him, Jesus met him in a dramatic way and absolutely revolutionized his life. And in the same way that he persecuted the church, he became the champion of the gospel. And he was a slave to the law and Christ set him free. So as we look at our world today, in a similar fashion we have examples of where the gospel is being compromised. We're going to have a look at three very, very quickly. The first one is where people add legalism to it. So if you want to be saved, if you want to come to Christ, clean up your act first. You're battling with X, Y, Z. Clean that up first and then Christ will accept you. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ accepts you as you are. Again, Paul writing to the Galatians, he says, Galatians 2.15 We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So again, he's comparing the context of the chosen people versus the the dogs, because the dogs were also a word that was referred to the Gentiles. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Very simple. So if anybody says to you or tries to say to you, you have to do something, you have a set of rules that you have to follow to come to Christ, That is absolute nonsense. We have to have faith, believe in Him. The second example of the way the gospel is compromised is by promising something in return. So you might find some people saying, come to Christ and you will get prosperity. Come to Christ and you will be wealthy. 
Come to Christ, you will be debt-free. Come to Christ, and you will no longer have any kind of sickness. Come to Christ, you will have no trials of any kind. You will have whatever you need, and you'll get whatever you want. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did not promise us heaven on earth. He promised us eternity with him and a reason to live while we are down here. And the problem is that a lot of the examples here, TV ministries, for example, TV ministries can happen from 12,000 miles away. So there's no way of actually checking out the character and the methodology of the person behind the ministry. But they will say to you, sow your seed money into my ministry and you will somehow reap a harvest whenever. But what do they, they just collect the money, the cash register rings, and people very often are, le- are left in serious debt and they're also left with false hope. And this is incredibly dangerous. And that's why the local church is so important. You can come to us, you can ask questions, you can investigate what's going on, you can find out that there's relationship here and we walk this journey together. We are not perfect, nor are you, but we are working at this thing called local church. So the third example is when God and Christ are completely removed from the gospel. And the progression to where this has come has actually been happening over the last hundred years. And a hundred years ago, most universities, in fact, a lot of universities were founded by Christians because there was a Christian understanding in our cultures that if we study God, we then study the natural sciences, we study biology, we are learning more about God because we are studying His creation. And so most universities had the Department of Theology as the centerpiece of the university. But about 100 years ago, it started in in the University of Princeton, United States in 1920. They removed that central department out of the university. And that move began a slow progression that then removed references of theology from institutions of higher learning. And of course, then what happened was your, 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 your religious seminaries started rising up because theological studies were still necessary. But that didn't stop there. It actually then moved through schools as well. And so you see a lot of situations where even references to God and understanding about God has disappeared. And now we've even arrived at the point where there are churches where God and Christ has actually literally been removed. Here's a a news article that is a situation that's happening right now in Canada of a church which is being led by an atheist, Reverend Greta Vosper. And she says, we don't talk about God. She says, this church is for people looking for a community that can help them create meaningful lives without God. And this is, not, this is not an atheist church. This is a denominational church, Christian church in Canada, where there's now something is coming to the boil because this situation has to be dealt with. But it's incredible to me that we've got this far where the gospel is being compromised to the point where this situation is simply trampling over the work of Christ, what he has done, what he has brought, and the love that he has for that local church and for this pastor is simply being trampled on in a way that I'm trusting for resolution in the sense that she will be saved, that she will once again see the light of the gospel. So that's our first point, is looking at the importance of the purity of the gospel. The second one is the power and value of the gospel. Paul turns his attention to the value and power of what he has found in Christ. And he says in verse 7, whatever I gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, 
Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. Now, the Greek term that was used here that he uses for gain and loss was a business accounting term. Literally, what he was saying was everything that I had, that, that long list of all my achievements before I knew Christ, I put in the credit column, and it was massive to me. It was like a tower of credits that I, that I was proud of. He says, it's not, just, it's not just not great, it's actually from level below. It's negative. It's utterly negative because it did nothing to bring me closer to Jesus. And Jesus himself described the gospel like this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he sells all he has, and he buys that field to gain the treasure. Paul started realizing that to know Christ is something utterly beyond belief. And our salvation isn't something that we collect along the path of our life, like a job or a career or a house or a Twitter account or a Facebook account or just fire insurance or FIFA 17, which has just been released on PlayStation 4. Glory, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. And I won't remind Mark of the score that we are so far. But our salvation is something which is absolutely and utterly transformative. Because what actually happens is that it is not just a once-off event that happens and then it's over. It's something that continues throughout our lives with Christ. So the question I need to keep asking myself is, from a year ago to where I am now, how have I changed? How have I become more like Christ? How have I moved along the way? Because the Bible says we are changed from glory to glory until we meet him face to face. Because that's when perfection comes. So how am I changing every day as I become more like him? And it rips me out of a kingdom of darkness where my boss actually is Satan. My king is Satan. It rips me out of that place and it places me in the kingdom of light, of love, of goodness and of truth. And before I met Christ, I was under, literally I was under the wrath of the law of the old covenant and the penalty that I had in that place was death and what God said I will send my son I will place him under that same law and then what Christ does Christ lives perfectly so he fulfills the law so there's no penalty necessary for him but he says not only will I fulfill that law I will take the penalty that is due for me and he will take that on and die that death that was due for me it's unbelievable. And then he doesn't just stop there. He then creates the righteousness he created through living a perfect life. He puts inside me, he seals me with his spirit until the day of redemption, which secures me until the day I see him. Absolutely unbelievable. And this is, begins to show us why the Christian has reason to have joy in the face of trials and sufferings, because we not only have a reason to live, we have a reason for the future as well. And in verse 10, Paul says something fascinating. He says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why does Paul say that he wants to share in Christ's sufferings? Now, Paul, we can't list them now, but he suffered a lot. But he says that he wants to share in Christ's sufferings because he knows that because of the way Christ suffered, Christ shares in our sufferings. And I'm aware of suffering that is going on in this faith community right now. And it's not just one or two instances. 
There is suffering that is happening to people within our body. And so I just want to appeal to you, if you know of people who are suffering, there's a lot you can do. Phone call, drop off a meal, just let your presence be there for them. Because yes, we have hope, but as we go through trials and sufferings, we hold one another up as we travel this journey. That is what community is about. That is what the local church is about and the body of Christ is about. And again, Paul writing to the Corinthians put it like this in 2 Corinthians 1.3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Incredible, incredible thing that he wrote. And then the last thing he says is he wants to become like Jesus in his death. And now that's again, there's no doubt to me that what he was trying to say was he saw that Christ gave his life for the cause of the gospel. And Paul was prepared to do the same. And again, the contrast. In Syria, we see people killing for the cause of their religion. Whereas Claudia's example, you heard her testify and say she was prepared to go to Syria and die at the hands of ISIS. That is a message that is utterly contrary to what the world understands and says. Our third point is the promise of the gospel. And what we're looking at here is just, we need a reason to live. Do you agree that humans need a reason to live? And a reason to actually carry on. Paul writes in verse 11 that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's looking to the future, he wants to finish strong, And he wants to ensure that his life with Christ is securely wrapped up in relationship, that he will follow Christ through the door of death, Christ being the first one to go through that door and live, because Christ was the first person to be raised from the dead. The other guys were a bit unlucky. Those who were raised from the dead died again. But Christ was the first to be raised from the dead and stay alive. And... Human beings need a reason to live which actually goes beyond the grave. You see, it's all very well to have, to find some meaning in life. But when you face death's door, what does that mean? That's a second stage of meaning and significance. Because if we just believe that there is no God, and it's fascinating reading all the philosophers around this this topic, if there is no God, there cannot be any meaning because there's no relational understanding to who we are. We're just bits and pieces of atoms and therefore actually who cares? What possible meaning can you find in yourself? And so we're going to have a quick look as we close at some ideas that man has come up with for meaning in life. And the first one is the United States Constitution. And I'm not knocking this because it's it's an incredible document that the founding fathers came up with. But they had a list of of what they called inalienable rights of every human being. And so the one you hear most often quoted when they talk about the American dream is this one that's coming on the screen now, which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, as wonderful as that sounds, again, happiness is purely temporary. If I'm thinking of something that is an inalienable right for me, in terms of meaning and sense of living, I want something more permanent than that. And so, let's look at a couple more. Here's one by Henry Miller that says, life has to be given a meaning because of the obvious fact that it has no meaning. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I I don't even know where to start with that. 
but this is when we look at our philosophers. And if I think of, of Sigmund Freud, who, who was such a huge name in the game of philosophy, of sociology, and psychology, his end result was that the purpose of man is to chase happiness, like a dog chasing a bone. Well, good luck. You know? I mean, what possible meaning and significance can that give you? Let's try another one. Kurt Vonnegut. It's called German name, yeah? He says, everyone now knows how to find the meaning of life within himself. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, if I think, if I compare a life of a, of a poor, poverty-stricken young boy or girl living in a slum in Calcutta, and then on the other side we have Donald Trump with yachts and lies and everything else that he has. Sorry, did I say that? Who's, when they both look into themselves for meaning in life, I mean, are they going to come up with anything that's even vaguely similar, let alone significant? I don't think they will. So let's try again. Alan Elder wrote this, the meaning of life is life. <laughs> okay? So what does that mean? I don't have a clue. So again, we can keep asking men we can, and, and, and women to try and come up with a meaning for life. But if you do not have a... A, an understanding of a God who is created within who lives within relationship and created us within relationship, you haven't got a starting point. The next one that I just came across which has no relevance, but I just thought that this was something. This is advice you can actually use: is if you can't run with a big dog, stay up on the porch. Fair enough. That's helpful at least. We can use that. So at least there is some use that men and women can have, because they can come up with stuff like that, which is fantastic. Interesting that this was an anonymous quote. So we can't even, you know, give the person credit and say thank you. But that's good advice. But the purpose of life is for us to be reconciled to our creator, to know and love him forever, and to invite as many people along that journey as we can. It's as simple as that. But what that does for us is it gives us meaning for now, and it gives us purpose for the future. It gives us a reason to live beyond the grave and the, the confidence that we will live beyond the grave. And again, um, from the scripture, explains this. John 17, verse 3, and I close with this. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is the purpose of man, is for us to know God and live with him and love him forever.